Hi, thanks for calling Dictator Design, where autocracy meets art. We specialize in designing everything from bunkers to palaces. We work with some of the greatest and most luxurious minds in fascist design, like Coco Chanel and Hugo Boss, to get your security state looking sharp. For secret police uniforms, press 1. For golden chandeliers and animal skin carpets, press 2. For military jackets and meaningless medals, press 3. To hear about why people can't get enough of fascist design and how it helps secure a dictatorship, stay on the line. Good day, fellow autocrats. If you're joining us after listening to our first few episodes, then you've successfully overthrown your democratic government and installed your very own dictatorial regime to create a great utopia dedicated only to you. Congratulations! I am now incredibly afraid for the future, and I praise your health and power. Today we're going to be talking about something a little less violent than democratic upheaval, but something almost as flashy. I was listening to music, as I usually do when researching topics for the podcast, and I stumbled on this little lyric from They Might Be Giants. In their beaver hats, and the fascists have the outfits, but I don't care for the outfits. What I care about is music, and the communists have the music. They Might Be Giants makes a point when they say the fascists have the outfits. One of the most effective things about fascism is how cool they make it look. I mean, have you seen stormtroopers from Star Wars? God, it makes me want to blow up a planet and slave a star system. But I digress. Now that you've become an autocrat and cultivated a cult of personality, you've got to think about how to sell yourself to the world. The greatest autocracies on Earth still have fans around the world based off of their look and style alone. It's why communist music and style are memed every single day. It's why your weird friend has a floppy hat with a red star hammer and sickle. It's why the Nazi flag still flies high in communities around the world. So remember, while you may reject fascism and authoritarianism in your politics and media, you might just wear their hearts on your sleeve. Welcome to the new age of government. Welcome to Authoritania. topics and examples for this episode, it was pretty clear that the design choices from dictators are, well, he's been spotted wearing at least $700,000 worth of luxury watches, nearly six times his reported yearly income. On top of that, he's linked to 58 airplanes, a fleet of yachts, and a private jet that has a $60,000 gold toilet. A perfectly constructed capital city called Ashgabat that's completely decorated in the whitest marble you've ever seen. Do you know how many white buildings there are? It's about 80% of uh, buildings, yeah, are white and marble. That's so crazy, yeah. One of the biggest and most notable aspects of authoritarianism is just how crazy their design choices are. I mean, all major dictators that we know and love opt for multi-million and billion dollar improvements to massive palaces. From massive golden doors in the Kremlin, hundreds of tons of white marble and gilded statues in Ashgabat, Turkmenistan, million-dollar crystal chandeliers, and the desk. The desk is a replica of Uday Hussein's desk. I saw a picture in Newsweek. Listen, I'm a very busy man. Let's get right down to business. Okay. It's easy to see that the most powerful people in the world opt for some of the most gaudy and over-the-top designs to show off their power. Writer and journalist Peter York describes the trends across these despotic design choices in his book Dictator Style, The Lifestyles of the Most Colorful Despots, where he studied the living spaces of autocrats and despots around the world, including such illustrious names as Slobodan Milosevic of Serbia and Saddam Hussein of Iraq. From these, 
he defined what he calls the 10 rules of dictatorship. Number one, go big. This is pretty self-explanatory. I mean, much like that guy in your high school or hometown who had a massive truck or hot rod, dictators like to show off their supposedly big manhood through large displays of wealth and power. It's reported that some of the palaces owned by everyone's favorite oligarch Vladimir Putin each cost over $1 billion. Some plutocratic pads, like Nikolai Ceausescu's in Romania, were so big that it wasn't even finished before its owner's execution by the people. Nikolai's palace is so massive that the government, who subsequently turned it into a tourist destination, didn't have the cash or ability to fill the place. It sits half-empty as a tourist destination in the capital for anyone wanting to get a glimpse into the digs of one of the last megalomaniacs of the 20th century. Do you think maybe he's compensating for something? <laughs> Number two, reproduction. Now, I know that we just got off juvenile penile jokes, so reproduction in this sense does not mean what you think it means. Uh, no time for the old in and out love. I've just come to read the meter. We're talking about reproducing old styles of architecture and design. Think mostly Roman, Greek, or other classical styles. For many autocrats, this could also include incorporating historical domestic styles that serve as a reminders of time of former greatness. Take Neo-Ottomanism in Turkey. This is an ideology pursued by the ruling Justice and Development Party that seeks to relive the glory days of the Ottoman Empire. It's an expansionist policy, seeking to reclaim formerly Ottoman lands in Syria, the Caucasus, and the Balkans to make Turkey an empire again. A few years back, you had to go to museums or landmarks to see anything Ottoman-related in Turkey, but now you can walk outside your door to theme restaurants and reproduce aesthetics, Turn on the TV and see President Erdogan walking along Ottoman turquoise carpets beside soldiers and band members dressed in Ottoman regalia. Even the jerseys of the national football team have changed from being primarily red to Ottoman turquoise. However, most autocrats, no matter how nationalist, will utilize some sort of Western-style architecture in their palaces and buildings. I toured the palace of the Republic of Turkey's founder, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, and it looked like a French imperial residence. You can probably guess why. <coughs> Colonialism. <coughs> Imperialism. Sorry. It's a bit of a cough there. All these symbols of Ottoman, Greek, and Roman empires long gone are used throughout the world to convey a particular sense of strength, nationhood, and the domination of law. It's why every monument in D.C. has a similar design, or the Capitol building looks the way it does, or why every state house or government building in our nation has to sort of look like it too. Rule 3. All gold everything it's luxury rich how rich very rich <laughs> so rich daddy rich this has got to be the most obvious rule i mean if you were the oppressive dictator of a nation wouldn't you want to surround yourself with pure wealth okay maybe it looks gaudy terrible even but it's just so freaking grand i mean look at the golden doors putin walks out of to give a press conference it's enough to make king midas jealous and this isn't limited to Russian oligarchs either. The palaces and cathedral of Vatican City are a testament to this design motif. The Catholic Church, at its height, ran entire empires, enslaved millions of people, and engineered the ethnic cleansing of thousands more. In its halls are gold-leaf decorations, priceless artworks, and massive golden altars meant to convey a sense of heavenly, absolute, and all-powerful rule. In the U.S., you can find videos online of Fox News journalists getting tours of Donald Trump's private apartment and being blinded by the sheer amount of gold gilded furniture and fake crystal chandeliers that hang from the ceiling. I'm pretty sure he has a gold toilet too, which 
Oddly enough, can also be found in a few other dictator houses, according to Peter York. It also can be found in Elvis's uh, private jet. That's just a, a fun little tidbit. In Turkmenistan, one of the best examples of dictator design choices at work, Arkadag and national leader Gurban Guliberdi Mohamedov and his predecessor, Sapormurat Niyazov, erected golden statues across their beloved capital of Ashgabat. Say that sentence three times fast. I dare you. One is of Niyazov as a baby, and another is of a massive Caucasian sheepdog. Another is a massive statue of a Turkmen warrior on a cliff of white marble. There's too many to list here. Turkmenistan actually has the world record for the most white marble buildings in a city. My personal favorite monument is a massive gilded book written by Niyazov that opens every night to read out a passage and display a beautiful light show. All of this, from Ashgabat to the Vatican, is done to demonstrate the power of rulers and cement their eternal glory. Hear the word of Pharaoh! Build unto me a statue of ridiculous proportion! One billion cubits in height! that I might be remembered for all eternity. And be quick about it. So yeah, obviously if you want to demonstrate your power and control as an individual autocrat, having a decked out pad and a bunch of pads is the best way to do it. You can't ignore a person in a palace. Having a palace to invest your illegal cash into isn't all that bad either. I'm not going to outline all 10 of Peter's rules. You can buy his book or read his articles if you'd like to do that. Instead, I want to show you how you rep authoritarianism in your everyday life through your fashion choices. Sure, you may not have golden statues of yourself, but I'm willing to bet you've got a couple of things in your closet that represent authoritarianism. I was walking around campus before COVID-19 made that a harrowing adventure, and I came across not one, but several students wearing a t-shirt with a particularly interesting design from the company Boy London. At first glance, I immediately saw the Nazi eagle emblem, known as the party Adler. You've definitely seen it before. It's a very geometric eagle, wings outstretched, clutching a wreath with a swastika in the center. Well, the symbol on that t-shirt was a very geometric eagle, wings outstretched, clutching the letter O in the middle of the word boy. It looked pretty Nazi to me, as well as to many other people, some of whom filed lawsuits against the company and lodged complaints in an attempt to pull the clothing brand from stores over its display of seemingly Nazi imagery. Boy London denies any relationship to the Nazi party or ideation of Nazi ideology. A spokesman for the company stated that the eagle was inspired by the eagle of the Roman Empire as a sign of decadence and strength. Its aim is to empower people rather than oppress. It's an interesting rationale, considering that the same eagle was adopted by the Nazi party as an inspiration from the Roman and Holy Roman Empire as well. Remember when we talked about reproduction? That's another prime example of it right there. Funny enough, the brand was founded by an Israeli businessman who marketed punk fashion in 1980s London. While he only marketed the eagle, his competitors marketed the swastika outright, trading on its shock value as a selling point. And this isn't limited to only the 80s, obviously. Swastikas have been featured as a common design piece even today. In 2008, the fashion brand Zara apologized and pulled products from its shelves that featured a swastika design. Indiana University in Bloomington had to redecorate one of its gymnasiums two years ago after students noted swastika trim along the walls leading to its doors. Now, let's be fair. Nazi iconography can be accidental in many cases. However, many people are unaware of how foundational the Nazis and fascist regimes across Europe were in shaping the fashion trends and brands of today. I'm not just talking about Boyd London. I'm talking about Hugo Boss, Coco Chanel, Christian Dior, and fashion houses all over the world. 
author, activist, and researcher Eugenia Policelli has published a considerable number of articles and books documenting the rise and hold of fascism in the fashion world. One of her books, Fashion Under Fascism, details the use of fashion by Benito Mussolini to strengthen Italian fascism and promote the image of an ideal Italian. An edict from the reign directed towards women reads, The Italian woman must follow Italian fashion. Taste, elegance, and originality have demonstrated that this initiative can and must be successful. In the early 20th century, Italy saw fashion as a prime avenue to export Italian ideals, national identity, and regional dominance. If the world is wearing your clothes, how could they possibly hate you, right? Mussolini saw this ideal as a feminist cultural wave was rising around the world and decided that he should implement a series of propaganda campaigns designed to promote the new Italian woman, or la nuova italiana. Her clothing was beautiful, but designed with the aesthetic of a rural feminine housewife to combat rising styles of American pantsuits, French couture, and what Mussolini's contemporaries saw as a masculine tomboy female dress. It's from this first effort to promote the rural Italian style that the hyper-feminized flashy fashions that mark houses like Prada, Gucci, and Versace took their inspiration. Though the Italian National Fashion Council failed to make this look dominant across the world at the time, their influence still remains a core part of Italian fashion. This same thing happened in Hitler's Germany. Wanting to promote a similar self-reliance model as Italy, Hitler adopted fashion as a method of propaganda, establishing the German Fashion Institute as a way of promoting German styles with German materials in high fashion. After the occupation of France, he considered moving the French fashion industry to Berlin in order to control what he saw as designs that were too liberal for women to wear. Instead, they should wear clothing that represented the role of a German housewife, committed to cooking, cleaning, and childbearing. The psychology behind this choice by fascist Germany and Italy is simple. If you look and feel like the ideal citizen, then you will act like the ideal citizen. This didn't die at the end of World War II. This still remains a core ideology of authoritarianism today. The RSS, a right-wing paramilitary organization in India that heavily supports the Modi government, published similar style guides and promotional materials in 2013 when it said women shouldn't wear jeans as it would invite sexual assault and was too masculine and Western for Indian society. The Turkish government under Kemal Ataturk banned the wearing of hijabs and head coverings in public as a symbol of un-Turkish dress, a ban which continued well into the 2000s for Turkish women in academia. To promote these fashion changes and nationalist sentiments in clothing, you're going to need some big names and designers behind you. Mussolini failed at this. I mean, Italian designers didn't see themselves as representing their nation, just their communities or regions. They produced what they pleased, with just enough allegiance to the state to get them off their backs. Hitler, on the other hand, enlisted the help of one of the most illustrious designers in history to create his army's uniforms, their style, and their futuristic flair. A man by the name of Hugo Boss. Boss was a member of the Nazi party before Hitler, and I'm not just saying that, he literally joined the National Socialists two years before Adolf. Members of the Nazi assault division were called brown shirts for their distinct color and imposing position that Boss designed. His designs were adopted by the SA, SS, Luftwaffe, and Hitler Youth. The aesthetics that came from him were recreated across the nation as symbols of military might, German pride, and national strength. His clothes were produced by Polish and French prisoners, essentially slaves, captured by the Nazis and forced to labor. Other designers, like Coco Chanel, were Nazi sympathizers, whose clothing was promoted by the regime and more than likely assisted by the same industry of slavery. Boss and Chanel are still powerful companies, with stores and marketing on every major continent. 
If you can get someone like that behind you, you enjoy practically free publicity and diplomacy. All publicity is good publicity, you know. So how do you get them interested? Sure, you gotta make your autocratic aesthetics look rich, cool, and flashy, but they're the ones who are gonna take your designs and run wild. What stops them from going to an actually reputable regime? We just mentioned how, actually. You get them slaves. One of the wonders of our capitalist world is the legalization of slavery. There are more slaves now than have ever been in the history of our planet. I'm not using a metaphor here. There are slaves on every continent, and probably in every country on Earth. They're cheap labor, basically free, they can't unionize, they don't have rights. They're too weak to do anything but work. And if they can't do that, there's plenty more where they came from. China uses Uyghur political prisoners to pick cotton used in, you guessed it, textiles and clothing. They are unpaid prisoners of a system determined to destroy their sense of nation. And a fifth of the world's cotton supply comes from China alone. Cotton picking is already synonymous with historical American slavery, but it persists in our borders today. Underpaid migrant workers from Central and South America pick cotton now. And if they can't meet quotas, they're fired, they're left homeless, they're replaced by a cycle of abused workers. The cotton that's picked in these farms and camps goes to sweatshops where children in Central, South, and Southeast Asia process it into fast fashion shirts, shoes, pants, pillows, and whatever else you can think of. If not children, literal slaves, working in horrendous conditions with no safety protocols but subcontracts from your favorite brands, like Nike, Adidas, Aeropostale, Gap, ASOS, H&M, just to name a few. If you can provide these services to these companies, you don't even have to put your fascist logo on the shirts. They'll print money for you. They make contract after bribe after subcontract to give your regime a steady source of income and grow your economy through their marketable partnerships. Getting kids to wear your imperial logo is a statement on punk fashion and raging against the machine. That's just the ironic icing on your cake of capitalist autocracy. Perfection. I went shopping a few months back looking for a Halloween costume to wear while celebrating at home. Yes, I am a hypocrite. As I browsed online, I realized just how popular Star Wars costumes are again. I saw tons of outfits, but the most popular? Stormtroopers. Soldiers of a fascist galactic empire. Badass looking. Designed from the aesthetics of the Nazis and Soviets. They're sci-fi fantasy. Sure, I wouldn't be supporting a real empire. I mean, I'm not encouraging Order 66 and the purging of the Jedi. I bought a hoodie, and I sat back in consumerist bliss. When it came, I tore open the box, I cut off the tags, ready to try it on and rep a non-existent autocracy. The tags, however, told me I was repping one all too real. 100% cotton. Made in China. Thanks for listening to this episode of Authoritania. Remember, autocracy lurks behind every corner. Authoritania is written and hosted by me, Nikhil Jane, produced and edited by Kennedy Mangus, with music by Sloan Welsh. You can find Sloan at Sloney Baloney on Instagram. That's Baloney with two Ys. If you want to hear more from us, support our work, or buy us a cup of coffee, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com authoritania. You can find us on Twitter at authoritania and tweet us your questions and we'll talk about them on the show. And be sure to share us with your friends, family, and government informers. I'm Nikhil Jane, and I've been your autocrat for the day. I'll see you in the revolution. <laughs>